this morning, uh, I'm going to share with you out of the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew, a tax collector who gets born again, becomes a follower, a disciple of Jesus, who then writes his recollections, his memories, and his observations about the life of Christ. Matthew writes with a Jewish audience in mind. He begins his gospel by going through the genealogy, proving that Jesus, in fact, is the promised Messiah from the tribe of Judah, the fulfillment of what the entirety of the law and the prophets have looked forward to. It begins with his history and then the miraculous nature of his birth into his three and a half year public ministry, the miracles, the rebukes of the religious crowd, the reaching of the masses, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, the cleansing of the leper, the casting out of demons. And then near the end of the book of Matthew, it transitions into telling us the story of Passion Week. And Passion Week is a term used to describe the last number of days of Christ, where he will be betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane by Judas, handed over to the Sanhedrin for a mock trial, sent to the Roman authorities, Pontius Pilate and Herod, who will ultimately make the decision to crucify him, three days later, raised from the dead, some weeks after that, ascended into glory. And like we say, the rest is history. But in chapter 27 of Matthew, it helps unpack the trial of Jesus as he stands before the governmental leaders of his day, giving in some sense a defense for the messianic claims that he has made. The governmental leaders say things like this to him. We've got the authority to either end your life or to save it. And Jesus responds, you have no authority outside of that which my father has granted to you. For no man takes my life from me. I lay it down freely for those whom I love. <laughs> And then in the interactions that Jesus has with the governmental leaders of, of his day, it, it reveals some of the priorities and the principles of how the kingdom of God works on the earth, even in our present moment. And there's a style of preaching and communication that concerns me today where pastors can go through 48 week sermon series and never once mention the bloody cross or the empty tomb. Can I tell you the entire point of the story is that Jesus has brokered a new covenant by the shedding of his blood and death couldn't hold him. Therefore, it won't hold you. That's the point of the story. From the very beginning in the garden where Adam and Eve take fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it has always been in the heart of God to provide an atoning sacrifice. All the laws and the festivals and the ordinances and the customs of the old covenant, they are simply shadows and types that point towards a future restoration by which Christ will broker relationship between man and God, restoring the peace that was stolen in the garden. It's the point of the story. And we should never get so familiar with the gospel that our heart becomes removed 
from not just a moment in history, but the moment that split history, by which Christ wiped out the handwriting of requirements against us, paid our debt in full, declared it is finished, and in doing so, ushered us into and invited us into everlasting life. In Matthew 27 and in verse 15, the trial of Jesus unfolds. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival, which was Passover, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. It was the governor's custom. Pontius Pilate trying to appease the Jews that the Roman government ruled over. Jewish people from all around the world had converged on Jerusalem for the celebration of one of their most holy festivals, Passover, by which they would reflect on the goodness and the faithfulness of God, which caused the angel of death to pass over the Hebrew children as the 10th and final plague had broken out against their Egyptian taskmasters. It was this sign and wonder that would ultimately result in Pharaoh letting God's people go that they may worship him in the wilderness, thus beginning a 40-year journey by which eventually they would find the land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised to their forefathers and in doing so a nation of God's holy people would be birthed and so once a year at Passover Jews would converge on the holy city they would make sacrifice in the holy temple and they would remind themselves of what God had done Josephus who was a first century Jewish historian he recorded that at Passover, over 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed in the temple in a single day. But see, this Passover would be different. On this Passover, the Lamb of God, who had come to take away the sin of the world, would become the atoning sacrifice for all of humanity once and for all. And the gospel authors, they back up that witness. 1 Corinthians 5, for indeed Christ, our Passover lamb was sacrificed for us. 1 Peter 1, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or wrinkle. Revelation 5, and amongst the elders, I saw a lamb standing in their midst as though he had been slain. Pontius Pilate thought it was just another Jewish feast. Pilate thought it was just another party. Pilate thought he would be a kind and benevolent dictator and release a prisoner to appease the Jews that he ruled over. But see, this Passover, it wasn't about what Pilate would do. It was about what Christ would do for the spirit of the Lord was on him because he had anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free and declare this is the year of God's favor for your life. 
and the father wouldn't stop the plan of redemption until captivity was led captive. Hell was made bankrupt. The grave was made empty and death had lost its sting. It might have been the governor's custom in the moment, but it was God's plan all along. The spotless lamb would crush Satan's head and in doing so grant us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So what does Passover mean to me? It means that death knew my address, but Jesus knew my heart. It means that when darkness came knocking, the blood started shouting. It means that although judgment was deserved, mercy was released, and death has passed over me. Now watch verse 16. And at that time, there was a, a well-known prisoner. He was, a, he was a, a famous prisoner. Church history tells us that likely Barabbas was one of the leaders of the insurrection against the Roman government, trying to overthrow their rule and reign so that they could set up a Jewish state. And, and finally, the soldiers had made the arrest of the leader of this insurrection movement. He was a famous prisoner. And Pontius Pilate speaks to the crowd. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, the Messiah? They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. If you sense that Pilate is hesitant to free Barabbas and crucify Christ, you would be correct. For the Bible tells us Pilate's wife, she had a dream and she warned him saying, this man, Jesus, it is not right that you should execute him for he is innocent. But see, the warning of his wife was quickly drowned out by the cries of the crowd. As Pilate tried to reason with them, the crowd only got more belligerent. They wanted blood. They wanted revenge. They wanted the man who claimed to be God, who claimed to fulfill the law, the one who ate with sinners, welcomed the little children and rebuked the religious leaders. They wanted this Jesus to be utterly destroyed in front of them. And isn't this still the choice humanity is confronted with today? Will you choose Jesus the righteous or Barabbas the rebellious? Will you choose God's way or man's way? Will you choose life or will you choose death? But ultimately... It is not the crowd that chose Barabbas, it was God. For Barabbas was exactly the type of person that Christ had come to save. And whether Barabbas knew it or not, it was in this moment that the beauty of God's plan began to be revealed. Oh, don't you see it? 
You are Barabbas and so am I. And we are the ones that Christ gave his own life for. That cross had my name, but Jesus took my place. Punishment was what I deserve, but grace is what he released. It was me who was headed to a sinner's hell, but in the moment of time, God split covenantal history and now I'm presented righteous and faultless before the throne because the blood of Calvary still speaks a better word. That's right. That's right. Now when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. He said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility now. And watch how the crowd responds. This is so interesting to me. And all the people answered, his blood be upon us and on our children. Yes, that's the point. That's what this entire exercise is all about. His blood will be on us and our children and our children's children. And although our sins put him on that tree, his blood, it will cover us and set us free. The people are prophesying and they don't even know it. It's similar to what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. The promise is for you and it's for your children and it's for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I'm here to tell you, his blood is still on your family. His blood still calls after your children. His sprinkled blood still speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that blood still speaks today. And the next time you're facing condemnation and shame because of your struggles, why don't you just go ahead and prophesy the blood? The next time you're facing sickness, disease, and diagnosis, why don't you just go ahead and prophesy the blood? And where, where was the blood of Jesus shed? It was shed through his hands. It was shed through his feet. It was shed on his head. It was shed from his side. And it was shed on his back. Oh friend, his hands, they were nailed for your strengthening. First Chronicles 29, in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. His feet, they were pierced for your security. Psalms 56, you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling that I may walk before God in the light of life. He wore the crown of thorns on his head for your sanity, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. His side was pierced for your redemption, for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and his back his back was whipped for your healing for by his stripes we are healed
So therefore, I can declare, I am strong, I am secure, I am sound, I am redeemed, and I am healed, because that's exactly what the blood did for me. And the story continues in Luke 23. But there was two others. It was a busy day on Calgary's hill. There was two others. They were criminals. And they were led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they were crucified. And the criminals, one hung on his right hand and the other on the left. Now, depending on what translation you would read this verse in, some translations say when they had come to the place called Golgotha or when they had come to the place called Skull. If you were to visit Jerusalem today, you could see the very place that archaeologists believe that Christ would have been crucified. And you will notice why it is so often called the place of the skull. Because of the rock formation, it was often referred to in that day and that age that this was the mountain of the skull or the rock of the skull or the place of the skull. And as you can see in this picture, it reveals to you why this hilltop would have been chosen as a place for crucifixion because of how easily it would have been seen by the major road below it. See, when the Romans crucified criminals, they wanted it to be a public act. They wanted the people to see how terrible and barbaric this death could be. They wanted the people below to hear the screams and the agony of the criminals above and be persuaded to never step out of line lest they face a similar fate. But friend, I am convinced if Christ died for me in public, then I'm not just gonna live for him in private. If Christ endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, then I'm not going to grow weary or lose heart. If he raised his hands on the cross, the least I can do is raise my hands in worship. If he forgave his enemies, the least I can do is forgive my friends. At a bare minimum, I want to live the type of life he paid such a high price for. So let me get this straight. Christ died on a hill for all to see, but my greatest fear is someone finding out that I actually believe what this book says. So let me get this straight. Christ died on Calvary's hill, but I want a participation trophy for making it out of bed to attend church. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them they know not what they do. And so they divided his garments and they cast lots. You know what's so interesting about this verse in the context of this scene is that the Bible never records anybody asking for forgiveness. The Bible does not record the Romans apologizing for having an out of character moment and crucifying the son of God. 
There is not the crowds who have returned to say, oops, sorry, we made a mistake. We released the wrong guy. Please forgive us before you die. There's just Jesus hanging between two criminals. Abandoned by the very disciples who said they would follow him to the cross. Mocked and abused by those who stood around them. And the cry out of the heart of Jesus is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friend, life gets easier when you learn to accept the apology that you were never given and release the forgiveness that you were never asked for. When I release forgiveness, into the life of somebody else, it's not so much for them as it is for me. I'm making the decision today is the last day. I'm hanging on to the trauma and the pain that you tried to injure with me. My destiny is far too important to stay in the baggage of the past. I'm moving on with eyes on Jesus. If he forgave his worst enemies, I can release forgiveness even when they don't ask for it. Father, forgive them. Well, forgive them when they ask for it. I'll tell them it's all right if they humble themselves before me. They better come back in sackcloth and ashes if they want to be my friend. And Jesus hanging on the cross releases forgiveness to those who haven't asked for it because that's simply what the blood of Jesus does. And the people, they stood looking at him, but even the rulers who were with them, they sneered saying, he saved others, let him save himself. The soldiers, they came up and mocked him too. They said, if you're really the king of the Jews, save yourself. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. You got to see this. The rulers, the soldiers, and the criminals all said the same thing. Save yourself. The rulers, the soldiers, the criminals, three classes of people all having different perspectives of that day's events. The rulers are afar off judging. The soldiers are up close jeering. The criminals hanging next to him are mocking. And how is it that all three types of people have the exact same commentary? Save yourself. Because regardless of whether you're rich or poor, whether you're blue collar or white collar, whether you're black, white, male, female, young, old, Republican or Democrat, apart from Christ, we are all trying to do the same thing. We are trying to save ourselves. But friend, you can't save you because you didn't make you. And the more you try to save you, the more you will frustrate you, fail you, and hurt you, and lose you. But if you trust Jesus, he will seek you, he will find you, he will save you, he will forgive you, he will restore you. And friend, that's the best deal that there's ever been. But the other criminal rebuked him. 
Don't you fear God? Since we're under the same sentence. See, we're punished justly for what we're getting. But this man, this man's done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies to him, assuredly, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. I am so shook by these last two verses. It records the world's shortest salvation prayer. And it worked to secure a sinner an eternal place in glory. He didn't even understand the four spiritual laws. He didn't even do a repeat after me. He didn't even come forward to the altar at the end of the pursuit service. All he said was, remember me. But it was enough to secure a sinner an eternal place in glory. Hear me, friend. God isn't impressed by the length of your prayers, but instead by the sincerity of them. What God is after isn't the religious performance from your best moments, but the raw transparency of your worst ones. And you've got a choice in regards to how you remember the events the people, and the circumstances of your life. For even God makes a choice on how to remember you. He chooses not to remember the sins of your youth, but instead to remember you according to his mercy. Think about it. The all-knowing God, omniscient, omnipresent, who is above all things, in all things, before all things, he has made a choice to forget what you've done wrong so all he can remember is his covenant mercy extended towards you. It's what the prophet Jeremiah declares in the Old Testament. For God says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I don't know about you, but it seems like the enemy always tries to attack me the same way because he's got no new ideas. Every time I get in the presence of God, every time I go to read the word of God, every time I go to praise the living God, what the enemy loves to do is to bring back to my memory every single mistake I've ever made in 37 years of living. And I was reading my Bible the other day and trying to focus on the word and challenge my soul and be refreshed by the living water that flows from its pages. And I couldn't even understand the verses that I was reading because all my mind was doing was replaying my last mistake. And so you know what I did? I started praying to God to ask forgiveness for the thing that I had already been forgiven for. And as I was praying a very nice, godly, theologically accurate prayer, I heard the Holy Spirit rebuke me. He says, shut up. I said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. He said this, stop reminding me of things that I've chosen to forget. Why? 
because he removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. He said, though your sins were as scarlet, come let us reason together that they could be made as white as snow. He has put them in the sea of forgetfulness, never to remember them against you anymore. And the enemy tries to get you caught up in the constant cycle of shame and condemnation, feeling like, how could God ever use me? How could God ever accept me? How could I ever be a son or a daughter of the Most High? Because just look at what I've done. But when the Father looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus. Because when you put faith in the risen Savior, you were plunged in the cleansing flood of his blood and he remembers not your sins against you how many of you grew up in theological environments where they use this analogy when you get to heaven and you cross the pearly gates there will be the biggest TV screen you've ever seen in your life It'll replay all of the sins that you have ever committed. And then Jesus will tell you, now you know you don't deserve this because of all your worst moments I just played on the big screen for all the angels to see. But anyways, I've forgiven you, so enter into your reward. How many of you grew up in environments where you heard that? Can I tell you when you close your eyes here and open them there, the only thing that you see is the smiling affirmation of a father who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to your reward. There's no highlight reel showing your worst moments. There's no public declaration of all of your sins. When Jesus died on the cross and his body laid in the grave for three days, his blood was applied to the mercy seat in heaven. And now you enter into right relationship with the Father by the torn veil of his flesh. And he declares you have been made righteous, forgiven, redeemed, and made new. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High, for in him you live and move and have your being. And even as your poets say, we are his offspring that's the type of God you have working on your behalf today and here's what gets me about these two thieves this thief never been to church neither has this one this thief never been baptized in water. Neither has this one. This thief never taken communion. Neither has this one. Didn't sign up for the serve team. Didn't tie in the offering. Never showed up at the men's breakfast. Never served in the parking lot ministry. Never witnessed to a neighbor. Never clothed the naked. Never fed the hungry. Never took care of the poor. Never posted a verse on Facebook. Never shared a sermon clip on Instagram. Yet one woke up in heaven and the other woke up in hell. What's the difference? This thief uttered a two-word prayer to a three-person God in one moment of time. And in that instant, he crossed over from death 
today. It beckons us back home, calls us into right relationship with God, and in a finite moment of time can change everything about you. And maybe you're here in this room today and you're recognizing like the thief on the cross, you've never been right with God, but today you want to be. Or maybe you're recognizing at one moment you was close to Him, but if you was to be honest, you're far from Him, but that blood which covers you and your children is calling you by name today. And you must know in this moment that if you would put faith in Christ Jesus, in turn, He would give you the assurance of salvation and secure for you a place in eternity. That's the God that we worship. Let me end here. Jesus responds to this man. Assuredly, I say unto you. You know what most people get wrong about crucifixion? They think that it's the pain and the blood loss that would ultimately end a person's life, but it's not. It was most common suffocation or asphyxiation because their entire body weight was held up by hands nailed in to a crude cross. And so with every breath, a criminal would lift himself up on the cross to take a gasp of air only to collapse again. Meaning this, every word that was spoken on the cross was intentional. Every word that was spoken on the cross was painful. Every word that was spoken on the cross was crucial. Every word that was spoken on the cross was spoken with the last gasp of a dying man. But it was so important for Jesus to let this criminal know that he has the assurance of salvation, that as he is suffocating on the cross, he lifts himself up one more time time and says assuredly 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 as sure as I am hanging here assuredly today you will be with me in paradise that's the God we worship who grants us that same assurance today come on would you stand with me as we close listen friend this morning, I am going after souls. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, 
if you would put faith in his finished work, then assuredly I would say unto you, you will be born of the Most High and your life will never be the same. Maybe you're here, you say, Pastor, I was raised right. I was raised in church. But if I was to be honest, my heart, it is far and it is distant from this God. But I hear him calling me by name today. Old friend, put your faith and trust in what Christ has done on your behalf. Offload the burden at the foot of the cross and come in to right relationship with the Father above. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray for my friends who are gathered in this room, those who are joining us at the online campus from around the nation and around the world. And God, I pray today that the same efficacious blood that was spilled on that hill so long ago would call us by name in this very moment. That he who would hear the voice of the Father would not harden his heart, but open a door and say, God, come on in. I'm ready today to do it your way, not my way. I'm putting my faith and trust in you. And Father, I pray in this moment, the seed of the gospel, which produces eternal life, would be planted in the soil of hearts all across this room. And that today would begin the first day of a long obedience in the same direction of faithfully following the man who took my place on Calvary's Hill. We pray these things now in the mighty name of Jesus all God's people said, amen and amen.